Hello and welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Pat Leahy and I'm sitting in this week for Hugh Linehan. Now last week was the week when fear about Covid returned to government and to the wider public. When the Taoiseach returned to the podium of foreboding at government buildings and announced new Covid restrictions due to the pressure the fourth wave was exerting and would continue to exert on hospitals and the wider health service. In recent days, the mood has become slightly, ever so slightly, less gloomy, and this morning we report that there will be no new restrictions announced this week. But Ireland is not alone in grappling with the fourth wave. All over Europe, governments have been reimposing restrictions, and one country, Austria, has announced a return to lockdown. To discuss these developments and the likely course of events as Christmas approaches, I'm joined by my colleague on the political staff, Jack Horgan Jones. And from High Germany, by our Berlin correspondent and author of the recent best-selling and critically acclaimed book, The Best Catholics in the World, by Derek Scally. Live from Berlin, Derek, you have breaking news of a government about to be formed. Is that correct? Yes, we're almost two months after the elections. Angela Merkel has been standing in as a caretaker, but we have a new centre-left government about to take uh, take the reins. Um, Olaf Scholz will be Germany's next chancellor. He's a social democrat, and he's going to be in government with the Greens, uh, who the social democrats have been in power with before, but also an untested, uh, the, the free democrats. They're a liberal party, kind of in the, the progressive democrats mode for older listeners. So it's an untested government. They're going to be trying for sort of a a liberal green transformation with social justice coalition, if that makes any sense. So they're trying to renew Germany, make it a slightly fairer place, but a greener place and encourage business to sort of use all of their German engineering skills to sort of provide a solution to global warming. So, you know, no no pressure or anything. And when do we expect uh, the new government? As As I understand it, agreement is currently being reached. They'll present the programme a bit later today. So when when will the new government actually take office, do you, do you expect? Yeah, the idea is uh, the 7th of December. Um, this is traditionally the Nikolaus Day where people put out a boot and they get magical gifts in their boot. Uh, sort of like an early Christmas in Germany. And the idea is that Olaf Scholz will be the Christmas gift this year. And they're uh, kind of anxious to get in early-ish in December because if they leave it another week, uh, Angela Merkel will overtake Helmut Kohl as Germany's longest serving Chancellor, so I think they want to deprive her of that little entry in the the world record book. So early December, probably the 7th. Well, one of the things that the new government will inherit, of course, is a very serious COVID situation. And we've had our head down here for the last two weeks, 10 days or so on a seriously deteriorating situation. We'll talk to Jack Horgan-Jones about that uh, shortly. But first, could you outline the situation in Germany uh, at the moment. And we we know that neighbouring Austria has gone into uh, a lockdown. But just paint the picture for us uh, on how things stand in middle Europa at the moment. Yeah, um, what we have is a very diverse picture. Um, It's the more southern part of Germany are very badly hit. So Bavaria and Saxony, anything tipping on to um, Austria and Czech Republic, they're doing very badly. Northern Germany is doing quite well, but if you look, you'll see a correlation between uh, how many people have been vaccinated and how many people haven't. So Northern Germany seems to have done a better job in terms of vaccinations. The 
national average is uh, about 68, 69%. But if you go to certain states like Saxony in the east, which has been doing very badly, it's got a massive, it's got like three times the infection rate of the rest of the country. They're, you know, they're not even tipping 60% in terms of vaccination. So there's a clear correlation there. And Germany is a decentralized country. So the federal states do their own thing. So you've got one state, Saxony, for instance, saying we're canceling all Christmas markets, you know, collections of people, lots of drink at play, not a good idea. Cross the border to Thuringia, which is in the center of Germany, and they've opened their Christmas markets and they're saying no problem, even though they've got also got national, uh, they've got rates three times the average. So you've got this bizarre bizarre people are determined to show federal state leaders are determined to show their independence of central government but um yeah i think it's all going to end in tears rather quickly there's going to be there was a meeting last week where they had uh, additional measures sort of a lockdown for unvaccinated people it's increasingly difficult to go anywhere or do anything if you aren't vaccinated or tested um but yeah i think we're kind of too just as in previous lockdowns we seem to be about two weeks behind austria so i imagine early december one of the first things uh, olaf scholz is probably going to have to do is knock a lot of heads together and impose some some sort of a of a tougher lockdown, none of this sort of playing around with testing and checks that nobody can actually check. That's not the sort of start that any new leader of any government wants to make, is it? No, I mean, eventually we're, I mean, all governments are facing exactly the same ethical dilemma. Um, at what point does the allowed minority determine the political agenda? And it is a minority. In Germany, it's a third of the population. I know in Ireland, it's fewer people who are declining to get vaccinated either because they haven't gotten around to it or they don't think of it or they don't believe in it or they think it's a conspiracy, whatever the reason, they aren't vaccinated. Um, and increasingly politicians are here are saying, actually, you know, your right to freedom does not allow you to inhibit the freedom of the majority. So governments have always wanted to avoid this sticky situation because it's an ethical dilemma, it's a political nightmare, um, but I don't think there's any way around it at this stage. Austria, they've decided we can't wait any longer and the numbers were off the charts and they said we're, we're prepared to um, basically say enough to the unvaccinated minority. The majority wants to get on with their lives uh, and... Uh, I think being locked up for three weeks as they are in Austria is probably going to concentrate a lot of minds of people who are vaccinated, who have adhered to all of the rules, and they're just tired of listening to these people talking about their personal freedom. Jack, um, unlike the uh, the Saxons, we are uh, vaccinated up to our eyeballs, or most of us are anyway, but we're still dealing with a very serious fourth wave. Now, last week, that kind of hit the political consciousness like a train and there was talk of further restrictions this week, maybe a pre-Christmas lockdown. Now, you and I are reporting this morning that that seems very unlikely to happen this week. Um, what's your sense of the state of play within government with regard to that prospect of further restrictions? So yesterday I was picking up uh, no small degree of hostility amongst uh, cabinet members. I spoke to to the idea of uh, introducing anything approaching a lockdown um, in the run-up to Christmas. And of course, that that shouldn't be a massive surprise because as you correctly say no more in in Germany than in Ireland no politician wants to go around shutting things down the question really is uh whether the advice will come from the national public health emergency team um and if it does what will the government do uh, to the first of those questions um at the moment i think that all the indicators are 
that Nefesh won't formulate uh, advice this week that will lead to a tightening of restrictions. And, and Tony Holan flagged as much yesterday in a fairly unusual move where he actually said something substantive to the opposition during a briefing that was arranged for uh, health and education spokespersons. Um, apparently the vast majority of it was a bit like a press conference, but he did put this nugget out, which was that he didn't imagine or he was hopeful that he wouldn't be giving any further recommendations to government this week. So it looks like this week uh, is probably safe on balance. Now, there is a broader question for all the uh, early optimism, um, and perhaps that early optimism is tinged with wishful thinking, um, but for all the fact that that is a, a reality, that people are thinking like that in government, I do think that it's probably still too early to tell just where the trend line is going. We are at an extraordinarily tricky point in the COVID pandemic and unprecedented because it's complicated by vaccination. But there's a huge amount of disease out there. Obviously, the hospital system is under massive pressure. Um, so, you know, these things, like, and it's, it's still too early to tell. It's too soon to tell after the last round of interventions as to whether they're going to be effective. And that's slightly complicated as well by the fact that the testing system is really maxed out at the moment. So the data that's coming out of it is a little bit lumpy and weird. And, and sometimes it's weird in that it's not lumpy and that it's flat. And, and you know, the swab data is, is, is the same every day. So whether that's the same leading edge indi indicator that it usually is, uh, remains to be seen. So I think we have to wait and see over the next kind of week or 10 days how hospitalizations and in particular ICU performs before we can say with any degree of confidence whether we're going in a good or bad direction. Leo Varadkar seemed to suggest last night, you know, that there was some cause for optimism in the numbers in recent days. I was speaking to uh, another cabinet minister who was suggesting more or less the same thing. Um, do you, are, you, are you picking that up uh, around the place from officials and from the Nefed side of things, that, that sort of sense that, well, we may, if this, these trends evident in recent days keep going, we may have possibly dodged a bullet on this? Yes, um, but like there no no one's being definitive about it yet. I think that the strong the strongest that people will go is kind of you know it's it's not bad in that there there hasn't been a, a clear deterioration of things, but neither is it clearly and obviously improving. Um, what is obvious is that the kind of hold the line or the wait and see strategy is a, a very charged political moment. There's a lot of risk there. Because all the things um, that when they're usually endangered end up with us going into a lockdown are really creaking under the pressure. We've already discussed the hospital system, which obviously in terms of you know acute care is is under huge pressure. But Paul Reid will tell the health committee today that you know it's having an impact on waiting lists as well. So there are those longer terms, longer term political healthcare issues that are looming into view. Uh, the same is true for schools, which are facing huge manpower issues, and to a lesser extent, the the childcare sector as well. So all those kind of red lights are are flashing uh, that usually and previously would have led to us 
reaching reaching for the lockdown button. Uh, the question is whether we can withstand. And then if we can't withstand, the obvious upshot of that is that the kind of political compact that has sustained us through 2021, that we would reopen and that with the help of vaccines, we'd re- return to a, a, a less uh, less abnormal version of the new normal. Um, and and that is, that is that's what is at risk as we head into the Christmas period. And I suppose there's the question of how much public buy-in that there would be for uh, a fresh lockdown or anything like it. And that's something I know, Derek, that is a question not just in Germany, but across Europe where we've seen sometimes violent protests at, at new restrictions. Is it possible to say what the protesters want or do they all want different things? No, it's really difficult to say because it's such a, a diverse, diverse group. I think if politicians knew what these people want, they would have either given it to them or tried to work to allay their whatever fears they have. And there isn't. And in Germany, I mean, the main groups are, and there are people who just are lazy. Let's be honest. They just haven't gotten around to it. They just think, oh, I've got other things to do. There's another group who uh, feel insecure. There's another group that believe it is a conspiracy. But there's actually an interesting group in Germany and they're sort of like the alternative medicine scene. There's a, uh, Rudolf Steiner was a guy who came up with sort of all sorts of alternative ideas about medicine, about healing, about uh, added lives. It's kind of like uh, acupuncture meets Scientology. And he has huge following here. Are these old German hippies, Derek, uh, that have re-emerged? Yeah, it's kind of 19th century. The Germans were doing hippies in the 19, late 19th century. And um, it all is to do with like, what time of the month do you cut your hair? How do you sow your crops? Uh, and do you do it when the moon, the full moon is there? It's quite an esoteric uh, scene here. And those people are usually quite well situated. They're well educated. They send their kids to these special schools. And they believe that if you are vaccinated, you are suppressing an illness that needs to come out, which is something to do with either a previous life or a coming life. I forget which it is. So, you, you know, you haven't just got, it's not just a, it's, it's a class issue, but it's actually the further up the class ladder you go, the less likely there are that these people will be vaccinated. So um, even Angela Merkel's husband, who's a scientist, he gave an interview to a, a newspaper from Turin today. He was getting uh, some sort of an award and he just said, these people are crazy. We've gotten very complacent in Germany. He never speaks. So if, if the Angela Merkel's um, husband, who has literally given no interviews in the last 16 years, says we've got, we've got these crazy people and we need to just, we need to act strong against them. I mean, that shows how, how serious the situation is. But again, we don't have it essential. Unlike Ireland, there isn't a central, things have to get really, really, really bad here because health is a federal, it's, it's a state competence. So Angela Merkel can't just go in and knock heads together and say, we have to do this. The, the states have to agree and it just it takes forever for 16 federal states to agree on anything and until then I'd say we're going to lose another week or two so it's uh, yeah the health people here are saying a bleak unless something drastic happens in terms of lockdowns we've probably got a, a kind of a bleak Christmas coming. Uh, well uh, Christmas in Germany not looking quite as jolly as it might uh, otherwise be. Derek thanks for all that. Last question to you Jack. Um, do you think there's public and political acceptance here far further restrictions if the public health authorities uh, decided that they were necessary. It seems to me that there's, an, incidentally, my apologies uh, to listeners who are hearing the division bells here in Leinster House ringing in the background, drowning out only briefly the grumpy truckers uh, outside who are protesting at the 
price of diesel, but they are representative to some degree of a sort of a national grumpiness, I discern, about the whole cost of living uh, issue. We'll see Sinn Féin are issuing a survey and I got a campaign on this uh, recently. And I just sort of wonder if that's not going to come together with COVID grumpiness to make uh, also quite a difficult Christmas for the Irish government. That was a very fluent segue, Pat. Congratulations. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just in terms of how how it would land, I mean, we we have our own issues, our own kind of cultural baggage here. It's it's no less embedded than than the German one, but perhaps it is more straightforward and led to high levels of vaccination because we made it contingent on getting a pint inside. So that's that's why we are in the happy situation of having ninety percent plus people vaccinated, uh, and that's the frame through which most people will see this. Um, it comes back to something I said a little while ago. If there if there is more restrictions coming, people will turn around and say, you know, we 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 held up our part of the bargain, we got vaccinated, and we'd like things to stay normal. Against that, I think that, Pat, you cited some interesting data in your piece this morning from Amoric, which shows that there is a growing appetite, or at least a growing acceptance amongst uh, amongst people, you know, that, that, you know, more restrictions may be necessary. Um, and, and people have often been ahead of the government on this. So while I don't think they would be popular, I don't think necessarily there would be people in the streets and, and probably on balance, you know, the, the large degree of social cohesion that has underpinned the Irish COVID response would more or less be kept. I, I don't think that the same is quite true for the political side. I think the political side has less patience for more more restrictions perhaps than the public at this stage. I think that what would be tolerated, accepted and implemented um, much with much more willingness by the political system is is curtailing um, sectors, you know, curtailing perhaps opening hours. So what would that look like? Restrictions on the numbers going to indoor hospitality, maybe, you know, 50, 75 percent capacity, that type of thing? Something like that, yeah, something like that. Perhaps, you know, fewer people allowed, fewer households allowed to mix uh, in each other's homes, um, you know, less people on public transport, that kind of thing. I think what would land very badly and what would be resisted very strongly would be the shuttering of whole sectors, you know, the closure of indoor hospitality, the closure of of of, of dining, the closure of the, the cancellation of, of mass events. And then, you know, the, the, the step beyond that um, is kind of not, not being considered and and would be i think the most strongly resisted is is the max suppression the max suppression kind of uh measures which would be stay at home closure of schools which would be i think politically toxic on all levels people and government um, and and those kind of you know march 2020 january february 2021 style measures yes nothing would say a not happy christmas more than uh being stuck indoors with your kids for the entire month of december but uh for now we will leave it there and uh, my thanks to jack and to derek and uh, stay with us because we'll be back with Dennis Staunton and Bobby McDonough talking about the state of Anglo-Irish relations. You're welcome back. The past week has seen a cooling in the temperature between the EU and the UK as talks continue over how the Northern Ireland Protocol should be implemented and governed. British threats to suspend the protocol under Article 16 have not disappeared but have become less urgent and less frequent while the EU, having signalled it could respond aggressively to such a move, has emphasised it wants to reach agreement, if at all possible. But how should the EU deal with a British Prime Minister who appears at times untethered by the rules and norms of relations between states? And what approach should be taken by the Irish government, which has a closer, more complicated 
and more consequential relationship with London than anyone. I'm joined by the Irish Times contributor and former ambassador to both the UK and the EU, Bobby McDonough, and by our London editor, Dennis Staunton. Bobby, let me come to you first. You had a really interesting piece in an op-ed in this morning's Irish Times, which is um, notable at least uh, for the fact that it got the word bollocks into the op-ed pages of the uh, Irish Times, which I confess to have been attempting to do uh, for six years now with a conspicuous uh, lack of success. But um, you're making the point that uh, Boris has basically said, like Jack in Lord of the Flies, says bollocks to the rules. How does the EU deal with an interlocutor who takes that approach? Well, I suppose, uh, first of all, I, I only managed to get that word in by, by quoting William Golding. I suppose m- my main point was looking at some of the recent developments in the UK itself, and in particular the uh, you know, rather extraordinary decision of the Johnson government to override the recommendations of the Parliament's Ethical Committee in relation to Owen Paterson, which was subsequently rescinded you know, purely because of the negative headlines in the media. And it struck me that there's a sort of disrespect for the rules domestically, which then spills into international relations and particularly with the EU. And I think, you know, we had the threat to um, not you know, the announcement that the UK was previously going to break international law. And now we have, unfortunately, the negotiations of the Northern Ireland Protocol, where the, the British negotiator um, d- doesn't appear willing either to explain or defend or implement the protocol uh, which they themselves negotiated. So it, it poses rather um, a difficulty for the European Union, but the European Union is attached to law. And so its own uh, weaponry, as it were, is is um, more restricted. But uh, I think the EU will continue to, um, you know, to try and find a way through this, sticking to the treaty that has been agreed and sticking to its own internal rules. And what about the Irish government? Because obviously you know, there's an extra element to the Irish relationship with the UK in terms of how we deal with all this. What position does it put the Irish government in? Well, the Irish government has no alternative but to deal courteously with uh, the British government that is in office. I mean, that is dictated by history and by geography, as well as by our shared sacred responsibility shared with the British uh, for the peace in Northern Ireland. Uh, I, as a commentator, uh, I'm not necessarily limited to, 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 to the same, if you like, um, reticence in the way we express ourselves. So the government is doing what it should do, which is to uh, operate the reality of the government in London that it has to deal with, but at the same time, making clear, very clear, our concerns and those of our partners in the European Union. Dennis, going back to the attitude displayed by Boris as as, uh, Bobby characterises it this morning, the bollocks to the rules thing. Is this, do you think this is a strategy on behalf of Johnson or is it just his political instincts? Well, it's the strategy that won him an 80-seat majority in December 2019 because if you remember when he came into office after uh, uh, defenestrating uh, Theresa May, he brought in Dominic Cummings and he brought uh, this approach to uh, to the rules and to Parliament and to the checks and balances, 
which uh, was one, as Bobby said, which uh, was sticking two fingers up to the rules, but also in a way, in the way that uh, is in keeping with populism in many parts of Europe and elsewhere in the world, it rested on the idea of uh, the will of the people. And so it rests, its supposed legitimacy is based on the Brexit referendum of 2016. And if you were able to argue that all of these uh, judges or MPs or members of the House of Lords were stymieing uh, his efforts to get Brexit done, you're essentially pitting them against the people. You remember the Daily Mail headline and front page enemies of the people. And this idea that actually there is an expression of the will of the people, which is the 2016 referendum, and that that actually is, uh, it, it has a higher level of legitimacy than any other vote since or than anything else that happened. And obviously, I mean, what he would say is that, first of all, we had 2016, then we had his election victory in 2019. And so that's the uh, the supposed legitimacy of it is based on that. And that then, he would feel, gives him some license to uh, continue with this approach to the rules, which has been successful for him politically, and which also, I think, is part of his appeal to some parts of the electorate. And, you know, I mean, if you look at, you mentioned, and Bobby mentioned the, the whole business of Owen Patterson, and, uh, you know, and the, uh, you know, he managed to upset every corner of his own parliamentary party throughout that Owen Patterson affair. Some of the older crowd, because he he ended up letting Owen Patterson down and also exposed them to more scrutiny about the, their own second jobs. And some of the younger, newer crowd, because they have no patience with the kind of activities that Owen Patterson was up to. So he caused problems for all of them. But they didn't put him in there because they liked him. They put him in there because they thought he was an election winner. And, he, and so he has turned out to be so far. But he won that election on the basis of a deal with the, an oven-ready deal with the EU. He didn't win it on the basis of, I'll agree this deal and then I'll tear it up afterwards and do whatever, uh, do whatever I feel like. And I wonder, you know, I mean, you mentioned Dominic Cummings, that he has, of course, since fallen out with stunning predictability with the Prime Minister and has characterised him you know, as as this as the shopping trolley lurching from one side out of control lurching from one side of the aisle to the other and there seems to 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 me to be at least uh, uh, some degree of truth in that observing him even in recent weeks on the subject of Brexit where he was lurching from one side of the aisle that said trigger Article 16 to the other side of the aisle who said, oh, well, we might be able to get a deal after all. I think I disagree with your analysis of the Article 16 question. I think what happened there was that the argument uh, for triggering Article 16, the basis of it changed because the utility of triggering Article 16 was actually to uh, reset the negotiations in a way that would be advantageous to Britain. Once Europe uh, made clear it would respond in a very robust way and various other political circumstances changed here in Britain, that meant that that calculation was, uh, you know, it no longer applied. So it actually made sense for him to step away from uh, the triggering of Article 16 because it would have only brought him troubles and it wouldn't have given him the advantage that he had previously thought that it would. And that in previous circumstances, I think, for in fact, that had he triggered Article 16 earlier, it might actually have caught uh, the Europeans napping, they wouldn't have been able to get their act together for a robust response quite as well as they have done in the last few weeks. So in that sense, I think that was a rational choice. But to go back to the more fundamental question, 
about what he was elected on. He was elected to get Brexit done. And the political puzzle of the current moment, I think, is does all of this messing around about the protocol send a signal, I'm still fighting for Brexit or remember, I'm the guy that got you Brexit, which is obviously a good message for him, uh, for parts of the electorate. Or does it tell the electorate, I told you I was getting Brexit done, that I'd got it done. And actually, here we are still talking about it. I haven't got it done. Now, we don't know just yet, I think, uh, exactly what the answer to that particular puzzle is. But that is, I think, the question that uh, you know, that the current moment sends us. Yeah, I agree with, with, with Dennis that uh, the Brexit referendum is used to justify anything and everything, uh, including, perhaps most dramatically, the prorogation of Parliament. I mean, can you imagine what the reaction would have been in this country if the government had tried to suspend, uh, to suspend it all? And interestingly, it, Brexit is used not only to justify other things, but it's used, the vote on Brexit is used to justify an interpretation of Brexit that wasn't what the British people voted for. I mean, if you, if you go back to the referendum in 2016, Boris Johnson and other people told the electorate that Britain would remain fully part of the single market. Um, but the vote on that particular day has been used to justify a much harder form of Brexit, a more distant relationship with the European Union, which creates additional problems for for Northern Ireland, for example. Uh, and also, as you said yourself a moment ago, Pat, when in the last general election, Boris Johnson ran on a platform of an oven-ready deal. But the very fact of the Brexit vote then allows him, in his own mind, subsequently to reinterpret what he's asked the British people to vote for in that general election. And what do you think, Bobby, of the analysis that I've heard quite a lot in Dublin from Irish officials? And, you know, we discussed this with you in the podcast, I think, last week, that the uh, that the the goal for Johnson is constant friction with the EU, that the goal is not necessarily agreement, that it is the process of being in a sort of Cold War with the EU, because that is uh, domestically, politically advantageous to him. Now, this is, I should say, that's something that is hotly disputed by uh, by officials in London that uh, I've I've spoken to, but it is certainly widely believed in Dublin and I think in Brussels too. I think human motivation is always mixed. I, I don't think anybody either in politics or in personal life does something for one single reason. Uh, but I do think that one of, the, one of the thought processes that plays into the Johnson government strategy is that they do see some political advantage uh, in, in keeping the European issue on the table. It's not that the issue um, has majority support, but of course Boris Johnson never had majority support, uh, including in the general election, but he's playing with that, you know, 35 to 40% support, which makes him look like a general election winner under the, under, under the British electoral system. But I think, I think probably there are different things going through his mind. I mean, if you, as there are for all of us, if you go back to his original decision to support Brexit, we know that that was, that was a very fine line for him. I mean, he, he was on the cusp of saying he was going to support Britain remaining in the European Union. So I think that division within his psychology is probably there. Unfortunately, the, the dominant element of it is now that, you know, Brexit made him as a politician and as a prime minister, and he's, he, he's pushing that and, and he sees advantage in continuing the, 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 the battle on the airwaves, as it were. But I think probably some other part of him uh, you know, when he talks about our friends in Europe or our friends in Ireland, it, it rings a bit hollow. But I think uh, I think there's probably some sin sincerity in it as well. 
Dennis, Bobby instanced some of the reverses, political reverses that he's experienced lately uh, in his piece this morning. And I, I'm, I'm reading all sorts of stuff in the British press about how he's under pressure from his own MPs, how there's been a loss of faith in him. How much pressure do you think he is under at the moment? And how, what sort of implications do you think that has for his approach to the negotiations with the EU? I think there's certainly an awful lot of unhappiness within the uh, Conservative Parliamentary Party. And that's uh, it's partly expressed about a frustration with him. Sometimes they talk about the operation around him. So you'll hear a lot of people saying there's nobody the same age as him or older than him who's able to talk to him and say, uh, you know, this is a mistake. Are you sure you really want to do this? And that, you know, uh, that he's kind of overcorrected from the time when Dominic Cummings was there and that Dominic Cummings seemed to outrank the prime minister in terms of, you know, decision making. And so that he has, uh, you know, uh, gone from being uh, in a position where what he thought or said didn't seem to matter as much as uh, that of his chief advisor to what his uh, view and what he's saying being the only thing that matters in Downing Street. And so that he's kind of untrammeled uh, at the moment. So that's one of the criticisms. Whether that actually translates into an actual political vulnerability for him is another question, because where exactly are they going to go? Now, the part of the subplot of all of this turmoil in the last few days is to do with accusations of hostile briefing against uh, Boris Johnson from people around Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And that relationship between number 10, number 11, Downing Street is always, you know, uh, there's always a bit of friction around it because one wants to spend money and the other wants to save it. And, uh, and, and so it is now. But uh, the, the question of whether, whether Boris Johnson were ever to move against Rishi Sunak or the Rishi Sunak would attempt to move against Boris Johnson. That's obviously going to be one of the questions that will preoccupy people over the next few months. But right now, although uh, he's been suffering in the polls and Labour have been doing a little bit better than before, I don't think there's any immediate uh, threat to Boris Johnson. There'll be lots of complaining and then everybody will go away for Christmas for the recess and then hope that things are a bit better when they get back. Bobby, what do you think of the idea that I, I, I hear a lot that the Johnson's approach to the EU, to the North, has led to a decline in the quality of Anglo-Irish relations and left them at a level that they haven't been at between the two governments since, I don't know, the 1980s? Well, I think two fundamental factors have changed in, in the British-Irish relationship. The first is that Britain has left the European Union. Uh, where we had worked together and shared aspirations and interests over half a century. Uh, And added to that was the fact that Boris Johnson chose a much harder form of Brexit than was necessary or was required by by the Brexit vote. Uh, And secondly, uh, we had worked together, the two countries, successive administrations, including in the British case, Margaret Thatcher and John Major and Tony Blair and so on, had worked together on the peace process in Northern Ireland. And while that remains a sacred shared responsibility which will be continued. Um, the European Union was the essential context for the whole process, as it were. It, 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 the European Union, uh, not just its financial and political support, but it also its example of reconciliation. Um, uh, and uh, that is now gone from the equation. And the choice of a harder form of Brexit, which, if you like, strengthens the return of, of, of borders in one form or another, really poses a difficulty for the for the relationships. So I think those are the two fundamental factors involved. And I think beyond that, the way that Boris Johnson 
and his government are are playing the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, is probably the additional factor that that not necessarily affects the relationship. Because as we all know, we get blue in the face saying it, but the protocol was largely shaped by the British themselves. It was agreed, ratified. It's an international agreement. And, it, you know, there's no indication that there's a sort of seriousness about explaining that it's a very balanced document, that there are significant advantages for Northern Ireland uh, in sort of in selling it uh, and particularly in sort of implementing it in good faith. So I think um, leaving the EU, um, then the Northern Ireland peace process upset by Brexit and then, if you like, a lack of... Uh, willingness to minimise the damage uh, by, by the Johnson government in particular by playing games with the protocol. Dennis, what I hear all the time from uh, from people in Dublin about the British approach to the North is that, you know, they simply don't care about it. You know, they're not in any way focused on, try, on, on, on a sh- the shared project of peace in Northern Ireland in the way that previous London governments were in partnership uh, with Dublin. Instead, they just think they're, you know, they're willing to do anything for domestic or uh, international political advantage, irrespective of the consequences on the ground uh, in Northern Ireland. What, what's, the, what's the view from, or your, your view from London on that? I think the uh, the Conservative government have told themselves a story about Northern Ireland, and particularly about the Northern Ireland Protocol, which uh, they're sticking with. And that is to do with the fact that uh, the protocol was negotiated perhaps, uh, certainly by Britain, uh, you know, in good faith, but they always had these doubts as to whether it would actually really work out as a sustainable solution. And the fact that it had failed to, uh, you know, to, to win the confidence of one of the communities of the unionist community in Northern Ireland, that that means that, uh, you know, that this is not a sustainable agreement. And uh, and the problem with the way in which they've told themselves that story is that even if new facts emerge uh, to, that seem to cast doubt in elements of the story, like the fact that uh, you know resistance to the protocol seems to be weakening a bit, and that uh, you know they suddenly have an offer from Shevchukovich of uh, of a package of measures that actually would deal with many of the practical problems that people uh, complained about, and many of those practical problems, uh, you know that uh, that people in Northern Ireland complained about. Like, for example, the fact that they couldn't get some products from uh, from England, those also had a kind of a sovereignty sentiment dimension to them. Uh, but actually, the, even if you resolve those, the the government is sticking with its line, and uh, and so and they've also partly because of the legacy of the uh, support the DUP gave to Theresa May's government, they have a closer relationship with the unionist parties. They behave with uh, the unionist parties as if they are allies. And they uh, they behave with uh, Alliance and the SDLP, who are the other two parties that are represented in the House of Commons, uh, or that at least take their seats in the House of Commons. They behave uh, as if they're antagonists. And so they, uh, you know, there was a, a bit of a kerfuffle uh, this week in London when Louise Hay, the shadow uh, Northern Ireland secretary, suggested that Labour would be neutral in the case of a border poll. And there was an awful lot of, uh, you know, clutching of pearls by Conservatives. But the fact is that this was the traditional policy of the Labour Party from Tony Blair onwards after Labour abandoned its position of promoting unity by consent. And so this neutrality of position was actually a kind of an advance towards, uh, toward, you know, away from 
from a kind of a more nationalist position. But you know, the fact is that because the it's become so commonplace within the Conservative government that essentially they are on one side of this argument, it's made it more difficult for them, I think, to play the traditional role that Bobby's describing in terms of how the two governments, going right back to Mrs. Thatcher, who was obviously a staunch unionist, but going all the way back to there, there was much more of a kind of an honest broker role that each that both governments kind of had to play. And that's the role that Irish officials would say is now gone and that gives you that vacuum without the two governments working towards a common agenda, talking to one another all the time, not just at political level, but also at official level. And it seems to me that the kind of personal ties between senior officials have probably frayed a bit as senior officials on the UK side are replaced with down with with Johnson's own appointments. And that is something that kind of contains the seeds of a problem, not just at present, but into the future. I think that's one problem that people talk about quite a lot. I think another problem, which is in a way more obvious, which people talk about less, is that Ireland and Britain are on different sides and have been on different sides of a very, very difficult negotiation uh, for the last few years because Ireland is part of the European Union. We were we had the European Union negotiating on our behalf. And so while Britain uh, and certainly the British government often regards Ireland as being, although it's obviously it's clearly an independent state, that somehow it has a special relationship with Britain and that that in a way it, you know, one of the difficulties that Brexit created was a psychological one for people in Britain to get over the fact that uh, you know that this country that they have been very close to for so long is actually on the other side of the negotiation, and I think also that's possibly mirrored in Ireland, where people get terribly hurt and offended about the fact that uh, the British are taking a rather robust approach. The fact is, we are on different sides in this, and I think we you know it might be useful for us all to kind of get over that fact and uh, you know and uh, in a way embrace the antagonism. <laughs> Come back to your earlier question. Pat, I, I don't think it would be fully fair to say that the, the British government and politicians and officials don't care at all about Northern Ireland. Um, I mean, I do think that it's definitely a lower priority for them than it is for us. And we saw that during the referendum when John Major and Chris Patton and others tried to encourage the Brexiteers or the, or, the, or the government to take account of the implications for Northern Ireland when we were all quite exercised about it, but there was really no interest. And I also think that probably the the level of understanding in London is not what it was uh, in terms of understanding that there are, there are two equal sets of aspirations in Northern Ireland um, and that being co-guarantors means working with the Irish government. I think something has been lost there. But I would like to, to, to emphasise, you know, talking about, about John Major and others, that nothing that I say, and I'm sure nothing that Dennis says, is remotely anti-British. I mean, what, what we're saying is right in line with what people like Ken Clark and John Major and Tony Blair are saying, and with opinion polls showing now that a majority uh, of people in the UK have, if I may use um, the phrase attributed to Boris Johnson in a different context, buyer's remorse about, about Brexit. I mean, we're, we're, we're very much in line with a lot of the thinking in the UK itself. And I also wouldn't like to you know, be too negative about British-Irish relations because there's one thing that's rock solid and that is relations between British and Irish people, between our citizens, between our, our businesses, between our sports fans and so on. Uh, that's still very strong. And as we know, for the first time in history, more British people have been moving to Ireland than Irish people to Britain in the last few years. And that's a remarkable statistic given that our population is so much smaller. smaller. It means that the impact of our new British friends is at least 15 times greater 
in terms of population size than people going in the opposite direction in recent years. And it's remarkable every time you watch a, a news program on TV, uh, several of the people interviewed are British people living in Ireland, not representing British views, but contributing and enriching our society. Uh, and, and that's a very underlying fundamental thing that, that's still going ahead and that will, I think, ensure over time that the relationship remains a good one. Okay, uh, Dennis, I know you're under pressure for times. You have to, have to rush off to some impossibly glamorous uh, event. So I'll put the last question to both of you, but I'll put it to Dennis first. Um, what do you think is going to happen over the coming weeks? Do you think Article 16 will be triggered? And if so, are we pitched then in the new year into uh, a fresh round of antagonistic EU-UK relations with the possibility for... A trade war, sanctions, all that, uh, or tariffs rather, and, and, and the potential of a return to a no-deal Brexit at the end of the year? Uh, I think all the indications are that Article 16 won't be triggered before Christmas. You had uh, Anne-Marie Trevelyan, the, uh, the British Trade Secretary, saying as much the other day. And then uh, Maurice Shevkovich this morning in an interview is saying that he expects the negotiations to carry on into the new year. So I think that's the general expectation on both sides, that these negotiations are going a bit more slowly than uh, than expected or than, than anticipated. And now they're uh, going to go on into the new year. And then Article 16 is obviously always there as a possibility. Another possibility uh, that's available to Britain is simply to allow this to become a kind of a frozen conflict, to just allow the facts on the ground to, uh, you know, so in other words, you basically, you keep rolling over, maybe unilaterally, you keep rolling over these grace periods, you uh, implement the protocol in this uh, the fashion that is implemented right now. And then uh, in a few months or in a year's time, you can argue in arbitration that uh, the fact is that obviously many of these things that the European Union has been demanding aren't necessary, that the, the half implementation of the protocol is adequate to protect the single market. And then, uh, you know, challenge the European to get its robust response together. I imagine that the Europeans are onto this. And so they're probably going to think in terms of certainly some kind of legal response. But whether you can really get uh, everybody ginned up for a trade war over uh, over Britain deciding kind of not to do something as opposed to Britain kind of pulling the house down. I think that's, a, you know, that's a, a different question. So I think we're going to have this with us unresolved for quite a while. It's something to look forward to. Bobby? Yeah, Pat, uh, I mean, I think Dennis has covered that. But, you know, rather than speculating what Boris Johnson will do, because, you know, he acts impulsively and it's it's really very hard to know, I just say how I think the EU will respond. Whatever happens, they will respond with some frustration, but also calmly and fairly and within the law, as they have always done. And, um, you know, David Frost said rather plaintively over a couple of weeks uh, ago that uh, it wouldn't be helpful if the EU responded if he triggered Article 16. Well, I don't know how they will respond. I don't think Brussels has yet decided how it w would respond, but they certainly will respond. Uh, and and uh, they will act to defend European interests, Irish interests, peace in Northern Ireland and the agreement that they signed with the British. Finally, finally, do you think the Irish government would, if Article 16 is triggered, seek to dissuade the EU from the nuclear option of giving notice that the entire agreement could be set aside? Look, I, I, I don't know exactly. What, I mean, clearly Ireland would be damaged by a trade war. Um, but I think uh, 
Simon Coveney has taken the lead amongst European politicians in emphasizing that a uh, suspension, effective suspension of, of, of the protocol by the use of Article 16 would involve a trade response by the EU. So, you know, I think, I think Ireland will try and be a voice for moderation and calm, but that will be very much blended with our shared European determination to implement the agreement that has been ag- agreed, which is in the interest of the people of Northern Ireland. Dennis and Bobby, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all for this week. My thanks to Bobby and to Dennis and earlier to Jack and Derek. Our producer was Declan Conlon and on sound was JJ Vernon. We'll talk to you next week.